welcome to Tiny Voice Talks with me, Toria Bono. And today, Tiny Voice is talking about one of my favorite things, phonics. And we may throw in a little bit about etymology and morphology in there. And I'm so excited to be joined by the one and only John Walker. So welcome, John. Thank you very much. Uh, It's great to be here and it's wonderful of you to uh, invite me. Thank you so much. Well, I thought, who else can you talk phonics with? I mean, what a person to have a chat about phonics with, the the John Walker. So, John, for those that don't know who you are, who is John Walker? Well, John Walker has been teaching now for goodness knows how long, since the 1970s. Um, I started my teaching career in primary schools, and from there I moved on to secondary after which I went to work for the British Council teaching uh, and training people in teaching English to foreign language. I went back to teaching briefly in secondary school again a bit later on, and it was only in the late 90s that I really began to develop uh, an interest again in why it is that children can't read. So this is something that had always fascinated me from the beginning, really, because I'd always wondered why it was. When I was teaching in primary, I taught year threes to begin with, uh, why it was that there were always a number of children who weren't learning to read. And it didn't seem to matter how much I sat with them and read with them and tried to support them, you know, develop their self-esteem and so on and so forth. I just couldn't do it. I didn't have the answers, basically. Uh, And I have to say that this continued well into my career, even to the extent of working in a secondary school for many years. We used to uh, test all the incoming, what we now know of as year sevens, as they came into the school. Mm. And what was interesting for me was that every year, uh, the... Uh, the reading ages seemed to go down. We used to use a single word reading uh, uh, reading test in those days. And what we found was that uh, we decided that any any boy, it was a boy's comprehensive, by the way, any boy with a reading age below around nine would be sent Mm. off to have special reading lessons and so on. And every year we had to scale that down a bit because – of the number of children who are coming in with very low reading ages. And obviously something was going wrong in the primary school. Well, even then, I still had no idea how to help these uh, these boys. And I do remember to this day the names, uh, all the names of half a dozen boys that I tried to teach to read who left school still being unable to read because the only method we'd, yeah. we'd use, and it was the one in vogue at the time, was whole language. Um, I did do a course, actually, at the Institute of Education for a year, uh, where we learned all about Brunner and about Vygotsky and Piaget and all of these people. And at the end of that year, I still had no more idea how to teach these boys who who weren't succeeding uh, than I did before. So it's always been something that intrigued me. When I moved on to the British Council to teach English as a foreign language, um, that was a real game changer for me because it suddenly made crystal clear that the English language had so many sounds in it and there were so many different ways of spelling those sounds. So all of Mm. a sudden, of course, 
course, I acquired a massive amount of phonic knowledge in that particular um, domain of teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Now, for those that are slightly younger than us listening to this podcast, John, um, I just want to unpick what you mean by whole word reading, because there'll be some people out there that didn't know that we used to teach whole word reading and that we used, you know, the children were just, yeah, we, we taught that way and the children were just expected to read that way. So what do you mean by just whole word reading? Go back in time to how we used to teach reading. Well, I mean, it, uh, the teaching of reading really goes back an awful long time. But uh, certainly when I came into teaching, then um, then the orthodoxy really was to present children with books such as uh, the ones that are produced still by the Oxford Reading Tree. And, and uh, we talked before about Biff and Chip, didn't we? Uh, mm. and, those, <laughs> and those books. So, so basically, children were expected to read these books with support, with help, and remember the words. Um, there was also uh, what preceded that was Luke and Sayers, well, Janet and John books, where you'd have mm. uh, where, where the, the text would look something like, look, John, a ball, a ball, Luke, a ball, John, and it would go on <laughs> like that. Uh, I don't know where kids wanted to stick that ball after reading a book that was almost entirely uh, composed of just those words. But anyway, the idea was that, of course, with constant repetition, that uh, children would remember those words. And, of course, for many children, they didn't. I don't actually believe that it taught anybody to read, really. I think that always children needed the help of Auntie Betty or uh, some other relative, perhaps, to elucidate exactly how all of this worked in the first place. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've got to say that when I learned to read, it was I learned to read with Peter and Jane. I'm still very fond of the Peter and Jane books, though. But, you know, they are, you know, I think it's the, my, the vintage collector in me. But they they... Yeah, it's really interesting when I look back, that's how I was taught to read. That's how we were, were taught to read. You know, I learned to teach reading through the Biff and Chip, as you said. And actually, the phonics is a relatively new thing. But if we look at your career, you were quite keen on learning lots about this and went back to university a number of times to do MAs. Am I right? Uh, yes, I did actually. Yeah. Uh, well, I first of all, um, I put myself through um, university again in in the nineteen eighties when I did a study. Uh, I did a degree in American studies, so which was really American literature, and that was followed by an MA in English literature. And uh, uh, mm -hmm. sometime after that, I I did another MA in uh, at Warwick University in post-colonial and post-colonial literatures in English, which I enjoyed enormously, I have to I say. Have well, I went on <laughs> then. I started a PhD, but I didn't have the money to finish it to, on the subject of uh, V.S. Naipaul, uh, whose writing I'd, mm. I'd always admired. But what it really did, all of this, was get me a, an intro really into the Open University where I taught a number of different uh, uh, courses, one being... Uh, uh, early two early years courses. Another was children's mm -hmm. literature, and another was sociolinguistics. And out of that, I began to wonder how it was that I had never succeeded in being able to teach these kids to read previously yeah. in my career. And it made me really want to delve into the research, and that's exactly what I did. 
So delving into that research um, and the shift that we've had then in phonics, talk to me about that move from whole word reading to phonics. Why is phonics so important to teach effectively? Well, uh, it's virtually impossible, of course, when you've got a language containing so many in, uh, so many words. I say virtually impossible. It is impossible. I'll be really categorical about it. You simply mm. cannot learn to recognise all of the words in the English language. On the other hand, of course, all of these words, with no exceptions at all, are comprised of sounds. There are 44 or so sounds in the English language. Uh, some people uh, say there are 45. Scots have 45. I can't say the sound very well, but I'll make an effort at it. The, word, the yeah. sound in the word loch, loch. So oh. there's that, that sort of throaty sound. Uh, the Liverpoolians have it as well in words, um, in, in some of the words. So, uh, for instance, they might talk about, would you like a Czechan, Czechan sandwich? Uh, and uh, mm. so they have it there. But there have, uh, is, essentially, uh, there are around 40, 44 sounds in the English language, and there are about, a, uh, about 175 common ways of spelling those sounds. Now, of course, that is something that is infinitely teachable in the first three years of children's schooling if it's done mm. properly, if enough time is devoted to it, if it's done every day for about, say, half an hour, and if teachers understand how the writing system works, because this is about the writing system. All children learn to speak naturally. Wherever you go in the world, uh, all children learn to talk. What children don't learn to do is they don't learn their own writing system. And a couple of chaps who've written a book called The World's Writing Systems, called uh, their, their names are Peter Daniels and William Bright, maintain that no child, no child learns their own writing system by themselves. All children need some kind of tuition. Um, and really what we say is that uh, if you're going to teach phonics, the more explicit it is, the better. Yes, yes. That makes so much sense. Now, you're talking about phonics within a writing system. Now, for some of our listeners, that will seem slightly detached because actually phonics is always often referred to within the reading system. So reading, writing, where does phonics sit? Well, for me, it's, it's always been a question of teaching reading and writing together, hand in hand. They, they should go mm. together. Children need to understand that writing is speech written down. Of course, reading and writing aren't exactly the same. Uh, we don't write exactly as we talk, but essentially that's what it's all about, that the, the, the squiggles on the page represent the sounds in the language. If you're able to segment sounds in words and you're able to blend sounds in words and you understand what the code is, you've been taught the code and how the code works, then you're able to learn to read and write, as long as you're given the opportunity to gain some fluency, as long as you have lots of opportunities to practice, of course. And that practice, of course, after, uh, after, the, the, after children take the very first steps in, in learning to read and write, that practice would include uh, connected text. And by connected text, I mean, in the beginning, decodable readers. One of the great problems with 
books like Biff and Chip and so on, or the Oxford Reading Tree readers. Uh, I'm not talking about some of the books that they've produced since uh, that they uh, maintain yeah. are decodable, and they are to some extent. It, the, the problem with those readers and Gin, uh, do you remember Gin? I, I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, Gin, what it was Josh, Gin yes, I remember Gin, Gin. yes. Uh, and, and, and the trouble with those books is even if they presented a single line of text, which they, uh, which the, the authors believed was very simple, for the, ch- the child to read, it's through all it's it's through all of the complexities of the code at the child in one fell swoop. So mm. basically, <laughs> children couldn't read even that one line of text, and of course, it developed on from there. So that's why decodable readers have become um, so popular because they la- they give children the opportunity to practice the phonics that they've already learnt in their. Uh, in their formal lessons. Which is so important. Now, I want to talk to you about sound to print, print to sound, because there's lots of debate out there about which is best. What is your opinion? Well, I'm going to have to say, uh, of course, sound to print, since uh, sounds <laughs> right in our programme. And uh, it, I mean, it's all in the name, isn't it? Sounds and right <laughs> and writing. <laughs> Um, well, I, I guess if you start from uh, what David Ausubel maintained, and that is if you start from what the learner already knows, the, the learner already knows the mm. sounds of the language. Now, they may not know that explicitly, right. but they do know it because actually children come to school by the age of four uh, being able to talk be able to speak and listen. And as a matter of fact, according to David Crystal, who's an expert on this, in this area, um, they come to school also with about three quarters of uh, the grammar of the English language as well, and then spend probably the next 15 years sorting out the other uh, <laughs> rather more complex quarter. But uh, so, yeah. so basically they're ready to learn. So the question is, how do you teach them? If you teach them right from the start that these squiggles on the page represent the sounds in the language and you teach it at the level of, say, CVC, consonant, vowel, consonant in words like mat and sit and sat and so on, and then you move on through the complexities, then uh, we think that all children can learn to read. And if I might, I just wanted to tell you about... um, uh, some data that we kept because um, mm. before we started talking, I told you that uh, I piloted uh, the course in a school called St. Thomas Aquinas uh, Catholic Primary School in Bletchley. And after training the staff, we followed them for three years, all the way from reception to the end of year two. And what we had was we had exactly 50. Uh, we didn't fiddle this, by the way. This it just came out this way. There were two classes <laughs> and there were actually more than 50 children started and some of those children left and other children came into the classes during the course of those three years. But we only took the data from the children who'd started and the children who went all the way through to finish at the end of year two. Mm-hmm. So out of those 50 children what we found was that 44% of them had a spelling age of 11 or above at the end of that, uh, at the end of that three years. 
Now, that's just to remind your listeners, that's when children were, on average, seven years and three months old. Okay, so they were seven years and three months Mm -hmm. old, yet they had spelling age, 44% of them had a spelling age of 11. But we're not just interested in the most able of these children, the children who probably got more practice from home and uh, maybe came from homes that that, uh, really focused a lot on literacy and things. But... Let's go have a look at the uh, the lower level. Only one child in this whole cohort had a spelling age below their uh, chronological age. The, uh, it was a child who was seven points, seven years and seven months old, and he had a spelling age of seven, which isn't actually too bad, really. It's within the acceptable range. Yeah. Uh, and 90% of all pupils had a spelling age above eight, bearing in mind, again, that there were still only seven years and uh, 3.5 months old at this time. So we thought that this was, you know, a tremendous success. And we collected data on something like 1,000, I think the figure exactly was 1,607 pupils in schools in Wigan, in um, Bedfordshire, and in Kent. And again, we pretty much replicated what we'd done originally. We weren't able to make sure that uh, the program was taught with fidelity, but what we did find was that 92% Mm. of those children at the end of year two were performing within the acceptable limits, and many of them were miles ahead, were way ahead uh, on the... uh, on the spelling um, test. And by the way, the spelling test was nothing, wasn't something we invented. It was an independent spelling test, which is out there for anyone to use. Wow. And it's properly normed and standardized as well, I might add. Yeah. What I find fascinating, number one, data. Wow. That's absolutely phenomenal to hear. But I, I don't know about the listeners, but I'm really interested that the data you're giving me is data about spelling ages because I was expecting data about reading. And actually, you didn't. You said phonics and actually the proofs in the pudding with spelling age. So let's talk about that real link between phonics and spelling that actually, in some cases, is missing, you know, in schools. Yeah, no, you're absolutely spot on in uh, in uh, recognizing that, Toria, because um, what we say to people is this, reading is recognition memory. If you've got the cue in front of you, uh, then if, if you've been taught it, there's a good chance that you'll be able to recognize it again if you've been given enough mm. practice. I mean, that isn't always the case, of course. I, I concede that. But spelling is a real test of memory because actually spelling demands that you retrieve the information from your memory. How do we spell the E in, I don't know, belief? Uh, Is it IE? Is it double E? Is it EA? When you think about all the alternatives, that really takes some doing. So spelling, particularly when the code gets more complex, when you move away from those one-to-one spellings, by one-to-one I mean one one letter, one sound, one sound, one letter, then it becomes very much more complicated. And what children need then is that they need a system which allows them to, to keep going back 
and checking over and over again whether it's gone into long-term, whether the information that they've been learning has gone into long-term memory or not. And so a really good phonics program ought to be spiral. So it, it ought to be able to keep going back and recycling the information that's already been taught and uh, it should enable the teacher to be able to check that all the time. That makes complete sense. It really does. So is it a case of teaching phonics and then teaching spelling? Or is it a case of teaching them in tandem? And when do we stop teaching it or do we keep teaching it? Sorry, that's a lot of questions, John. I do apologise. No, it's um, uh, we should begin teaching it right from the start. Reading and writing can be taught right from the start. So, for instance, uh, what I think is that we shouldn't be teaching letters in isolation to start with. Why don't we teach letters in isolation? Because for many kids, I mean, if you teach them, well, this is m, this is m. Well, who cares? So what? What do I care if that's m? It doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> Whereas. If you teach it through something that we use uh, called word building, we teach it through the whole word. So we'll start with a word like mat and we'll write the spellings onto some post-its, stick them on the board, jumbled up and out of order. We'll draw three lines underneath and we'll say to the children, I'm going to say the word mat. Can everybody Tell me, well, first, we'll, we'll also check, of course, that they understand that, uh, uh, they, that they know what a mat is because very often you actually have mm. children coming in uh, uh, who are speakers of other, na- other languages and they don't always know uh, what uh, some of the vocabulary is that we use when we're teaching uh, uh, phonics. Yeah. So we need to make sure that that's in place first. We also need to make sure that kids have heard uh, what the word is as well successfully so we might say talk to your talking partner and tell your talking partner what the word is so we're checking all of that before we actually start children are saying matt matt yes that's right matt well done uh and now we start and we say okay i'm going to say the word matt very slowly listen to the sounds you hear in matt and I then follow that by saying, well, who can tell me what they can hear when my finger's under this line and my finger's under the first of those three lines that we've drawn underneath? And I'm going, Matt. And some um, enthusiastic little learner will put their hand up and and want to answer the question, and they'll say, mmm, it's mmm. And we ask them to identify which the mm is. Everybody says that sound. The whole class says that. We check and see that everybody can say that sound correctly. So if anybody's saying m, we're pointing to our lips and saying, say it like me. It's mm. mm. So right from the start, we're checking that children are saying sounds correctly, that they're not using letter names. So if anybody says M, that's that's the letter M. We say, you're right, it is the letter M, but we want the sound. What sound is it? Mmm, good. Or, you know, uh, Crystal, tell us what the sound is. Mmm, good girl, well done. Say it like Crystal. Yeah. So we build this word, Matt, and they say the sounds in Matt at the end of the building. Mmm, at Matt. 
and we go through some of the other routines uh, involved in the lesson. But finally, children write the word mat. And it doesn't matter that their writing isn't going to be perfect yet. They'll make all sorts of representations and we'll be going around and making sure that at least we can read what they've written. So if they wrote the T the wrong way around, we might model a T, a letter T for them and show them, does yours look like mine? No? Okay, what do you need to yes. do with it? So at the beginning, of course, it's, it, this probably sounds really quite tedious to people. But to tell you the truth, it's very, very rigorous. It's very robust. And then you've got something to build on. So from mat, you can build sat. And from sat, you can build mm-hmm. sit. And now you've got five sound spelling correspondences uh, on which, with which to work. Yeah, and, and, and I, I love it. Yeah, I absolutely love it because it makes so much sense to actually teach it from the point of view of a word and not just a sound. Because then suddenly children can, I, I can just imagine these little people going home with, oh my goodness, I can spell mat. I can write mat, look. <laughs> um, yeah, they're a real sense of achievement. And I want to pick up as well on this wonderful sense that you put forward of actually success with children. So whenever you were saying, you know, someone was putting the word, the letter T around the wrong way, it wasn't yeah. a, oh, no, you've done that wrong. It was, oh, make sure it looks like mine. Does that run through everything that you do? Everything, absolutely everything. So, for instance, if we move on to, uh, we'll spend two weeks on those first five sounds, learning, Mm. teaching children to blend, segment, and manipulate phonemes in those words. There's not very much we can do yet with those words, but we can build, we can certainly build a few words. And then we build in another Mm. three, three. Uh, sound spelling correspondences, but one at a time. So we might build the next word might be uh, tin. So we we did the i in the t- in the first two weeks, and now we bring in a n. So again, you see, we're building in in small steps, which is something that children can cope with. Even children with poor working memories are able to cope with one sound spelling correspondence that's new if we give them lots of practice with that. Now, supposing. Uh, the word is tin, and the child writes Tim instead. So they've written an M instead of an N. We simply say to them, this is the way we write M. Or we might even check it first and say, what sound can you hear at the end of this word? Tin, tin. I can hear N. Yes, you can hear N. Is this N here? Uh, yes, I think it is. And they've written an M. Well, this is the way we write M. Is it the same as yours? No. Okay, what do you need to do? You need to fix it. Good. Well done. And don't forget to say M as you write it. So, again, there's a huge degree of rigor involved in the teaching and in the error corrections that take place, which are all um, very kind and gentle, <laughs> as you as you suggested. Yeah, because I think if children feel in a safe space, then they feel in that safe space to make mistakes because they know that they're not necessarily going to, it doesn't feel like they're making mistakes in the way that you are putting it, which I really like. Yeah, and uh, you, so you're, you're, you're dead right. So if they write later on, as as we develop um, uh, 
the programme into the further complexities and a child wants to write the word, um, let's say, rain, and they spell it R-A-Y-N. We would Mm. run our pencil under the A-Y and say, this is a way of spelling A, but in this word we need the A-I spelling. And now we'll probably use Mm. letter names. But if we're still not ready for letter names, we can write it on a whiteboard and say, this is the one we need. Or we can point to a poster on the wall, which we hope teachers uh, will put up as they teach the sound spelling correspondences. Uh, So it's the same one as in, I don't know, pain or whatever, strain, train, (laughs) something like that. Now, you mentioned ready for letter names. Now, that's a big thing. You know, when are children ready for letter names? Well, it's a really good question, actually. And um, and uh, I wouldn't uh, uh, I, I wouldn't actually prescribe a particular time. I think really, uh, to a large degree, it's up to um, it's up to the uh, uh, it's teacher judgment. So during the first year, what they're teaching children is they're teaching children to segment, blend and manipulate sounds in words so that they're absolutely brilliant at it. So, for instance, if the word is blend, to take uh, a five-sound word with two uh, adjacent consonants at the beginning and at the end, they ought to be able to go blend. And, in fact, that's going to be so fast that they'll just read the word blend after a while, and they'll be able to write that as well. In the meantime, we've also taught them through the use, through the introduction of double consonants, double F, double L, double S, double Z, in the context of CVC words. So, I don't know, words like uh, buzz and mess and fell, words like that. We've introduced them to the idea that not only can you spell a sound with one letter, you could spell a sound with two letters. And that's something that is going to be useful to them all the way through into year six and way beyond So if you're teaching the word rhinoceros and they want to know which spelling of er it is, we'll say it's the two-letter spelling. Do you remember? It's the R-H spelling of er, which we get from Greek. Uh, And we can probably talk mm -hmm. a bit more about that as we go on. But before, way before we do that, we'll go on to teach that you can spell a sound with two letters in the context of S-H and C-H and T-H, And then we'll start teaching that you can spell sounds in more than one way. And a great way of doing this, actually, uh, right at the end of uh, a reception year or a year one or a a kindy, uh, not a year one, sorry, at the end of reception or a prep in, in Australia or a kindergarten in the USA is to teach that there are three ways of spelling the sound K. So you'll teach C, K, and CK, all in the context of words, and show children formally what they may, many may already have realized, that there's more than one way of spe- spelling a sound. And we take it from there yeah. in year one and teach them all the main, the most common vowel and consonant sounds in English. Yeah, that makes it makes so much sense what you're saying, John. Now, I want to go back to one of my previous questions. It was one of the ones that was in the midst of immense amounts of questions. But when 
where at what point do we stop teaching phonics um well personally i would never stop teaching phonics actually i, I never stop learning <laughs> good, phonics. good answer <laughs> i never stop learning phonics myself I mean, there are words that I sometimes trip up on. I mean, you know, I'm a really, I'm a damn good speller. Uh, and that's probably largely to do with the, the, my, the education I've had. But mm-hmm. there are still words that might trip me up. And it is easy to make spelling mistakes with words that uh, you might have only seen once before and which are uh, domain specific. You know, so you don't see these words all the time. You might have only come across them once or twice. How do you remember how to spell them if it's necessary to know how to spell them? So, you know, how do you spell saccharin or how do you spell um, desiccated? Desiccated is a word I often use on our courses. You know, does anybody know how to spell desiccated? So far in all of the courses I've ever taught, I've only found two people who could spell it correctly. And one of those was because she worked in her father's shop this woman, and uh, they kept desiccated coconut, and she'd noticed that uh, it was one S and two C's, you see. so Oh, do you know what? I'm so glad that I didn't come forth and say, oh, I know how to spell that, because I was so convinced it was two S's and one C. That's really uh, well, interesting. Well, I've got a great way for you to remember it in future, okay? Do you want oh, to hear do it? tell me. Yes, I do. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you must like Prosecco. Well, a decent quality one anyway, I hope. Oh, who, who doesn't? Yes. Well, one S, two Cs. The seco relating to, I know you did Latin at school. You probably re- remember oh, yeah. that's related to dry. Okay. So seco is oh, dry. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, that makes, you see, for me, as soon as you link it back to my Latin, then I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah, no, I totally get that. That makes sense. Because as soon as I understand, so, yeah, desiccated, of course, right. That makes sense. Prosecco dry. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I love that. I shall never spell it wrong again. Right. So it's building on things like that. And if, uh, I mean, obviously, there are people who don't particularly care how they spell. Fine. It's okay with me. I mean, uh, it may not be necessary in terms of the kinds of jobs that they do. But lots of people do want to learn to spell well. And th- there are very, very simple ways of helping them to spell well. One is by mm. introducing them to and teaching formally and giving lots and lots and lots of practice in the different ways of spelling sounds. So in year one, we teach usually four or five common ways of spelling a sound. Uh, So, for instance, we'll teach uh, the A-Y, the A-I, the E-A, and the split spelling of A in year one. And we'll build on that in year two by teaching the other four common ways of spelling uh, that sound. So you can spell it E-Y in the word they, Mm -hmm. E-I-G-H in the word way or Mm -hmm. eight, for instance, the E-I in veil and vein, and the other one is, I'm yes. just trying to remember. Oh, yes, the, 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 the single letter spelling A as in acorn or April or David uh, uh, or whatever. Yeah. Now, along the way, you wouldn't necessarily have to wait till year two to teach some of those because in maths, they'd probably come across the word eight and say, here's another one of those, those A sounds. How do you spell the A in eight? And, and we can explore that. Eight. Oh, it must be four letters but just one sound. So 
all the time we're teaching uh this code knowledge but we're also teaching an understanding of how it works that you can spell a, a sound with one two three letters as in tch in the word pitch or yes. ere in were and you can teach uh, and you can spell a sound with four letters as in the case of eigh and probably also you'll see things like ey in the word they and be able to teach that much earlier than year two so teachers teach a lot of stuff tangentially once children understand conceptually how the code works. Yes. And what I really liked about what you said, John, is that you talked about teaching about that, um, you know, the EIGH within maths. And I think sometimes we think that spelling sits in the remit of the spelling classroom. That's where we teach spelling, everyone. But actually, within primary, we're so lucky because we can teach it completely across the curriculum where it is appropriate in that moment. Absolutely right. I mean, uh, it's relevant to all subjects. It's all very well teaching children about chlorophyll in the context of, say, a biology lesson. But it's not very helpful Mm. if we haven't taught them also how to spell it, how to break it into its syllables. So uh, the way I do that, just as an example here, is I break it into chlorophyll. And we talk about Mm. the spellings there. So the CH is a way of spelling the sound. And they should have covered this in year two very easily. Uh, Again, Mm. it's a word from Greek, so you'd expect to spell it. Uh, we keep on, I mean, if I'm teaching a class, I keep banging on all the time. If it's a CH spelling representing the sound, then it comes from Greek almost invariably. I can't think of any exceptions <laughs> just now, just off the top of my head. But what about the spelling in Phil? PH. Well, again, it's another indication that it comes from a Greek word. So we've got green and mm-hmm. leaf, and we can talk about the morphology of that as well if we want to. Uh, and and presumably we would be talking about the morphology of that word. And you know what? I'll let you into a little secret. I could never spell that blinking word correctly before. I used to spell it with one L, and it's spelt with two at the end. So... <laughs> Uh, one of the ways I remember doing that is analogizing it to other words where the spelling of ooh at the end of a word is two letters, two letter, two letters L. And actually, yeah, you've let you've leapt into something that I was we were going to talk about morphology and etymology as part of this podcast. But do you know what? I don't think we've got enough time to really delve deeply into it. So I'm going to ask you, John, if you will come back on my podcast again and talk about the development of spelling with morphology and etymology. And we'll sort of have a part two. Would you be willing to do that? Oh, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to, really. Uh, It'll be a a real privilege. Thank you uh, for inviting me already. Um, Yeah, no, I'm listening and I'm thinking, do you know what? We just need more time to delve into that because you're talking about the Greek and I think there is so much to that. And I know our listeners, actually, you know, it's, it's so valuable to teaching our children in our classrooms. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. And some people think actually that uh, some people think that the that you need to do one before the other. You don't necessarily need to do one before the mm. other. I think it's helpful. I mean, if, if a child says to me, you know, uh, Tyrannosaurus, that's really interesting, is it? Well, I'll tell you a true story actually, which is probably better. Um, I was working with a, a year two class in Australia. And the teacher was teaching the word rhinoceros. And the teacher had put these words, uh, put the sound spelling correspondences up on the board first. And the children built the word rhinoceros. So a lot yes. of spe- people spell it rus and not ros because it comes from Greek, not mm-hmm. Latin. And a lot of people get a bit tripped oh, okay. up with the, with the schwa in there, which is the, the E rhinoceros if you're saying it precisely and saying thing saying these words precisely is very helpful if you're if you're learning to spell um but then we talked about the meaning of the word as well now you could have done that we could have done this before we talked about spelling and i said to them do you know what a rhino what rhino means It, it comes from another language and 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 some bright spark said yes i think it comes from greek after a few false starts anyway um, and we got to that, and I said, yes, but what's it mean? And they couldn't get beyond. It's that animal with the horn on the end of its nose. And I said, no, actually, <laughs> it, is Greek. it is Greek for nose, <laughs> believe it or not. And oh, seros yeah. is horn. So logically, of course, they went, oh, of course, you know, the animal with the horn on yeah. the end of its nose. And do you know what? This kid immediately said, triceratops. The animal with three horns on its head. And that was just great. That was a fantastic moment. And those are the kind of quick, kinds of quick connections that so many children can make on behalf of uh, their peers as well and take their peers forward. So it's a really great opportunity for, you know, collective learning, if you like. I, I just love that. So, listen, listeners, you've got it here firsthand that John is going to come back on and talk to us more about etymology and morphology. So do tune in for that one. Now, before I let you go this time, John, I need right. you. And you're going to have to answer this question twice, actually, which is interesting, because you're going to have to answer it this time and in the next podcast. Okay. So if you could have been taught by anyone, living or dead, who would have been your perfect teacher? Well, of all the people, I, uh, I've read an awful lot of people. Um, Diane McGuinness was the person who put me on the road to the way to teach phonics in the first place from sound to print mm. in her book, uh, in her books, Why Children Can't Read and, and early, um, what's it called? Early, I forgot the title now. Um, uh, uh, I, I'll, I'll have to give it to you next time. Sorry, a, a, a senior moment. We'll put but, it in the show I, notes. Don't worry, that's fine. All right. Uh, but the person that I think I really would love to have been taught by was a Cambridge Don called Jack Goody. And he wrote a marvellous mm. book uh, called The Interface Between the Written and the Oral. It's a book that's absolutely full of gold nuggets. But it's only one of many of, of the people that I've read over the years who've just been absolutely so fascinating and, and from whom I've learned so much. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, they can definitely join the Tiny Voice Talk School, without a doubt. Now, John, I, how can I people remember, get in way. touch with you? Oh, Sorry, right. They, what, um, what is it? Early reading instruction. I've, it's come to me. Um, yeah. Early reading instruction. That's the oh. second McGuinness book. It was published in 2004. How can people get in touch with me? They can get in touch with me by writing to us at Sounds Right or by mm -hmm. uh, writing to me personally, john at sounds-right.co.uk. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, uh, and the Twitter handle is at SWL, the uh, capital. Oh, it doesn't matter whether it's capitals or not, does it? It's uh, SW Literacy, SW Literacy, all one word. And uh, yes, and you can see that on my Twitter feed where uh, people post lots and lots of stuff about the sort of things that they're doing in their classroom, uh, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, and you can also get hold of our decodable readers by going to our website, which is www.sounds-right.co.uk. Perfect. And listeners, if you absolutely wonderful. If you didn't get that, listeners, it will all be in the show notes. So do have a little look. All the links will be there and so on. And um, as I say, look out for the next episode where John will be talking to me all about etymology and morphology. So it just leaves me to say, John, thank you so much for coming on Tiny Voice Talks and talking to me all about phonics. I can't think of a better person to talk to me about it. Well, thank you uh, as well, Taria, because although the listeners didn't hear it, we had a, a long chat beforehand it was, and it was so nice. You're such an accommodating host and so wonderful to talk to. You made the whole process really easy. Thank you so much. Oh, that's the loveliest thing. Thank you so much, John. Have a really lovely day. Great. Bye. Thank you.